have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Colossians. And let's go to chapter 3. We want to pick up our study uh, in verse 14. Uh, we left off in verse 13, but uh, I'm going to go back to verse 12 and 13 real quick. And actually, our study begins in verse 14. But we're going to look at putting on righteousness. Now, if you were here last week, Paul took us through the first portion of Colossians chapter 3, and he challenges us. We have a choice in our Christian walk, and that is we can choose carnality or that we can choose Christ. And so Paul comes into this next section, and it's obvious that we don't choose carnality, the things of the world, but we want to choose Christ. And if we're choosing Christ, we have to put on righteousness. Now, the best way to understand righteousness that was given to me uh, many years ago. You see, before we came to Christ, we were not righteous, but we were wrong living for God. And so I come to saving grace, you come to saving grace, and God bestows upon us righteousness. And basically, righteousness is now right living for God. I desire as a Christian to do the right things of God. And that's why we study the Word. The Word of God is going to lead us and to guide us into all truth. Now, Paul spoke about that carnality, that we had to flee from fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so we look at those sins, and they're major sins. But the Bible says a sin is a sin in the eyes of God. And so then Paul goes on last week, if we choose carnality, then we're going to find ourselves in the sins of anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language. And so we have to flee those things. And if we choose Christ now, we put on righteousness. And that's what he's going to be speaking about. So let's go back up to verse 12, Colossians chapter 3. And verses 12 through 25, Paul speaks about the character of a new man, the character of a new woman. And that character is to put on righteousness. He begins in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, and meekness. Then he says, long-suffering. And so the elect of God. Who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the church, the body of Christ. He calls us holy and beloved, that we are agaped of God. We're the agaped ones, uh, to put on tender mercies. And we spoke of that last week. Uh, to put on the garment now of righteousness, right living with God. But if you have a King James out of verse 12, it speaks about the bowels of mercy. Now, we don't uh, speak in that type of language, but the bowels of mercy, the Greeks were good at this, and it spoke about the, the deep things of man, the gut area. That's what we would understand. The Greeks believed that the true feelings came deep down from the bowel area, the depth of the stomach area, the depthness of the emotions of man. And so let kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering come forth from the very depths of your soul. If a true Christian put these things on. One commentary said, the deep emotions of the soul and the spirit. And then we left off in verse 13. 
bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive. If we have put on Christ, we're saying we're not going to put on carnality anymore, which is the flesh, the sins of the flesh. And in that process of putting on righteousness, I'm called to forgive. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do. Because if you do something to me, or I do something to you, we just don't want to forgive. Or we forgive, but we don't forget. And so as a Christian, I need to learn to forgive and to forget. Don't look for, you know, revenge. Because that's our nature. And so grant them pardon. That's what uh, Paul is saying. Grant them kindness. And here's the key, church. If God has forgiven me, I should be able to forgive others. And let me share this with you. If you come to that place and you have a hard time to forgive others, pray. Lord, give me forgiveness. Lord, give me forgiveness for that brother. Give me forgiveness for that sister. Give me forgiveness for that, you know, family member. Because we all have hurts and pains. And see, by putting on righteousness, by putting on Christ, I can forgive and I can let go. And so Paul goes in now to verse 14, and we're going to actually pick up our study. Put on righteousness now. Or better yet, continue putting on righteousness because we're not done. And so he begins in verse 14. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Paul gives us the key to putting on righteousness because I can't do it, neither can you. But by putting on righteousness, let it be done through agape love. Because this agape love is the bond of perfection. Now look at the word bond in the Greek here. It's what joins us together, this love. It's what ties us together, this love. It's the principle that controls my life, controls your life, this love of Christ. The band that holds us together, the glue. One commentary said the adhesive that holds us together of perfection. This love that perfects my life, perfects your love. And it says that completes me. In crisis, we have the beginning here of completeness through his agape love. Now, here's the key as I was looking at verse 14. I can't do it. You can't do it. Because I love the Lord, I have his love in my heart. You have his love in your heart. And I can put on this love now. And that's why I can forgive. And that's why I have righteousness. Because of the love of Christ. And this garment of righteousness. There's a verse that I'm going to give you right now. We used to sing this back at Calvary Chapel in West Covina. It was a beautiful a song that we took right out of the scriptures. Write it down, please. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And John writes, and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God, for God is love. And then he concludes... He who does not love God knows not God, for God is love. So the key, uh, the denominator is love. How do I put on righteousness? How do I stay in that place of salvation? But it's through the love of Christ. You can't do it. I can't either. 
But through the love of Christ, we can. Now, leave a marker there. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Back up a little bit. And go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And here Paul speaks to the church at Ephesus. Walk in the unity which is in Christ. We're Christian. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. And so walk in unity. My manner of life when I speak about walking in Christ. And so he begins here, Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, he says, the prisoner of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Beautiful logic here. Walk worthy of your call, your call to salvation. Walk worthy of your call, your call to love. Walk worthy of your call, your call to righteousness. I can't do it. Neither can you. But through Christ, all things are possible. Look at verse 2. How do I do this walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another? And here's the conclusion. It's done in love, church. One thing, and one thing only, keeps me together with Christ. Keeps you together with Christ. One thing and one thing only keeps us together as Christians, and that is God's agape love. Otherwise, I can't do it. You see, I cannot do it with the love of the world. The love of the world is eros, sexual love. The love of the world is brotherly love. Uh, the word phileo that we have the city of Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Well, though, that's good. But I need agape, divine love. Love that only comes from Christ. And then he says in verse 3, Because I have this love endeavoring uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's done through love. Verse 4, There is one body. There is one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Again, the key is love. Put on love. You will fulfill. Look at verse 4 or 5. One Lord, one, one faith, one baptism. Now, he's not speaking about water baptism, but one baptism in Christ, baptized into his love. One God and the Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so God's love is that glue again that unifies us. God's love is that adhesive that holds us together in completeness in him. So Paul's saying, put on righteousness. I can't do it without God's love. God's love allows me to forgive you. God's love allows you to forgive me. God's love causes us to reach out. God's love shows us to, to share my love with others. As I see my family, as I see my friends, as I see my co-workers, without Christ, I want to love them, listen, into the kingdom of God. Put on righteousness. Go back to our text now. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called into one body. And then Paul's going to begin this sequence here. And he says, and be thankful. Be thankful. And so here in verse 15, allow the rest of God. That's the peace of God. The peace of God is his rest. 
And let it govern in your heart, your soul, your mind, in Christ Jesus. Why? Because this is your call. We've been speaking about that. We are now called into the body of Christ. And we shared this last week. Be a Jew, Gentile, barbarian, or Scythian. God is no respecter of men. God calls us to love. This is the peace, the rest, that comes forth from God. And then lastly, be thankful. And I'm going to share this this morning. Sometimes I'm thankful only because something good's happened. Lord, thank you. But do I thank God through my trials? Do I thank God through my hardships? Listen to me. Do I thank God because my loved one has cancer? Do I thank God because my loved one might pass away? Those are not easy tasks. We, we just had a funeral service, memorial service for a beautiful woman that was part of our church. She went home to be with the Lord, and we were so thankful. Listen, not for her death, not for her cancer, but we were thankful for the cancer is what brought her to Christ. And sometimes we don't grasp that. And that's why I can have the peace of God. I can have that rest of God that rules, governs my heart, governs your heart. The common denominator is God's love. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ inhabit your life richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, warning them. That's the word admonish. One another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing with grace in your heart uh, to the Lord. And so Paul encourages the church at Colossae. The Holy Spirit's encouraging us this morning to allow the word of Christ. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to study the word of God. Wednesday nights, we're here to study the word of God. That's what we do at church. And when you're at home, you're going over your, your own devotion or you're going over your own reading of Scripture. You're studying the Word of God. And you're making application into your life. Let it all be done in all the richness of Jesus Christ. Let it live in your heart. Let it make you wise. I desire to, to know the wisdom of God. And then he says, use his word to teach others, to counsel others, and then to sing psalms. To sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with a thankful heart. And that's what we're doing here this morning. The worship team brings us in to the place of worship. And it just prepares our heart to come in and to hear the word of God. But what about outside of the walls of the church? You should learn some of these songs to where, you know, you're giving praises to God even at your workplace. You're giving praises to God at school. You're giving praises to God at the gym even. Lord, I worship you. Lord, I praise you. <laughs> Being thankful as you praise him. Now, I want you to turn to this psalm. Go to the last psalm. It's Psalm 150. And verses 1 through 9. And the psalmist says, let all things praise the Lord. Now, as you go through the psalms, there's 150 of them, right? And so the psalms encourage our hearts. A lot of our worship songs come right from the psalms. 
This morning in our uh, devotional time here at the church, we were reading the Psalms of Ascent. And so there's those certain psalms that were sung, those certain psalms that were, uh, you know, preached as they were going up, ascending uh, to Jerusalem. They were the psalms of ascent. But now the psalmist brings it to a conclusion. And notice how many times he uses the word praise. Praise the Lord. And basically the Hebrew word for praise is halal, and it means to boast of God, to celebrate of God, to shine forth of God. That's why we come to praise him and to worship him. And that's why those thoughts come back as I'm out there, uh, you know, outside of the walls of the church, and, and then a song comes to mind. And God has placed it. I, I gave you that verse, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. We used to sing that. Beloved, let us love one another, for this is of God. And it just comes back to you so easily. And so let's read the, the psalm, the conclusion here. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Uh, praise him in his mighty firmament. The word firmament here in the Hebrew, the expansion of God, the vastness of God, as far as you can see, and then think of further. Think of the universe. Think of the galaxies. Galaxies, Lord, praise you for everything that you've done. And so the psalmist here takes it further. Look at verse 2. He says, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And then he goes into the various instruments. And you know, we're limited. Sometimes we just have the guitar going. But in some churches, you'll see the piano. In some churches, you'll see, you know, a horn and, and timbrels. And I mean, we should praise God. I was telling the first service, it's nothing uh, to go to an Aggie game, watch the football, watch the basketball, and we'll go crazy. Boy, you get me to a Dodger game or a Laker game, and I love those teams. And I'm yelling and screaming, even in front of my TV. But we can't do it at church. We're kind of reserved. Oh, they're going to think I'm nuts. But, you know, you got 50,000 people cheering, and so they think you're all nuts. It doesn't faze anybody. But notice the Hebrews here, the Israelites. When they praised God, they meant business. In verse 3, he comes into the instruments. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him uh, with string instruments and flutes. Praise him with the loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. And then he concludes it, church. Let everything that has breath praise ye the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise God. Am I going to wait till my dying bed to give him praise and honor and glory? And again, let me ask the question. Do we praise God only in the good things? Or should I be praising him also as I'm going through the trials, as I'm going through the hardship, as I'm going through the pain? When Job was asked by his wife, look at the mess you're in. He had lost everything, including his children. He was sitting in a heap of ashes, and, and the best that Job could do is he had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and he had a piece of pottery, and he was just scratching himself. And she said, look at you, Job. Curse the God that you serve. And Job responded, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Now, I can read that and I can quote that for you, but I don't know if I can live it because I'm just like you. Lord, this hurts. Lord, this is painful. Lord, I'm to rejoice. We rejoice because God has a reason and a purpose in everything. All things work together for good to those that love God. And if I've put on righteousness, I can understand these things. Look at verse 17. Let's go back to our text now. And whatever you do, he's speaking to the church. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul comes back to thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And here's the translation of verse 17. All that we say, all that we do, let it be a representation of my life. The Bible says that I am an ambassador for Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ. So all that I say, all that I, I do, let it be as a good representative, a good ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Jesus Christ. To God the Father, let my speech, let my actions, let my work glorify God. If I truly put on the garments of righteousness, do it for his glory. And here's something I've tried to live with for the rest of, you know, my Christian life, that is. That man would see Christ in me. That I would be a witness and a testimony Oh, not just here at church, because that's the easiest place to be a witness. But that they would see Christ in me at work. That they would see Christ in me at my, you know, family members that are not Christian. As I go to the university, as I go to the high school, or as I go to grade school, that God, they would see God in me. Even my teachers, my professors. If I go to the gym... Do they know that I'm a Christian? Have I put on righteousness or do I just put on righteousness at the church? Man, that they would see Christ in and through us. The Bible says that we're called to be an effective witness. You see, I can't do it, but in God's love, I can. I can't do it because basically I'm a shy person, but because of the power of God's Holy Spirit, I can. You can do these things. Now, verse 18. Paul begins this sequence now. The Christian home, the Christian character, put on righteousness. And he's going to be speaking about the marriage. He just does a small portion here. He really opens up in Ephesians chapter 5. And we've often heard, you know, the wife is to be in submission uh, to the husband. But you know, back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that we're <laughs> to be first in submission to one another in Christ. But we're so quick, the husband's so quick to tell the wife, did you hear the preacher? Be in submission to me. Well, let's see what the text says. Notice Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Now again, Paul, he doesn't quite 
you know, take it as far as he did in the church at Ephesus. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And this is a godly marriage, a Christ-centered marriage. Submitting one to another in the fear of God, in the reverence of God. The word to submit here is the word hupotasso in the Greek, and it's a twofold word. Hupo means to be under. Tasso means uh, to be under in obedience. To place oneself under the obedience. Here, under the obedience of one another first, and then husband and wife. The wife is to be in submission to her husband as unto the Lord. Now, I've been married long enough. Some of you have been married long enough. And you can't force your wife to be in submission. Woman, did you hear what the preacher said? Submit. Well, that's not going to last too long. You're going to be wearing a pot of beans on your head. But we submit to one another, listen, in the fear of God. And guys, let me share this insight with you. Uh, the more godly you become, the closer to God you become. A praying man, a man that seeks the word. I can guarantee you, your wife is going to melt in your arms. She will submit to you because you are putting on righteousness. And so there are those that don't agree with Paul because Paul wasn't married. Well, in order for Paul to have been uh, in the Sanhedrin and in order for Paul to have been a Pharisee, it is believed that he was married. Now, two things happened. Either his wife left him and divorced him or she passed away. But Paul never remarried again. And so Paul has the authority. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. One commentary said this. You will be under submission one to another first out of the reverence of Jesus Christ as the husband and wife now. Grow both under the submission of Christ by choice. Then we can fully understand here, Colossians 3, 18. Wife, uh, submit by choice to your own husband because it's fitting. Listen to the word. It's proper in the Lord. It's a scriptural thing that we do. The world doesn't understand that. Oh, there you go, Christians, again. And especially the woman of today. She's her own person. But if we look at the text, if we look at true Christianity, God has given the headship uh, to the husband. The husband is the prophet, priest, king of the home. He's got a responsibility. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, who partook of the fruit? It was Eve. But when God comes into the cool of the garden, he's not looking for Eve. He says, Adam, where are you? And then what does Adam do? The woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. And guys, we've been passing the buck ever since. Here in verse 18, when the husband is in submission to God, the wife will submit freely in the Lord. Now, in all the years I've been married, I don't go around telling my wife, submit, submit, submit. But the wife understands that. As she sees a, a godly man, as she sees a Christian man that has put on Christ, it is so simple. Then he takes it one more step for the husband. Look at verse eight, 19, please. Husbands, 
love your wife. And in Ephesians, he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. But here he says, husbands, love your wife and do not be bitter toward them. Oh, be careful with bitterness. And so this is an exhortation. Husband, love your wife, agape her. Then the husband and the wife are not to be bitter or embittered toward each other, but loving each other as Christ loved you. And so we go back to that whole purpose of forgiveness. I often share this in, 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 in just, but... How many husbands spend a whole night on the couch when all they would have had to say, honey, forgive me, I'm sorry, I repent. No, you get up in the morning like this, oh. And it's hard for guys to say, I blew it. Forgive me. I like to tell my wife, I forgive you. You know? But no, forgive me. And if Christ has forgiven us, church, why can't we forgive? I like what one commentary said about verse 19. Listen to it. Wherever bitterness is, their love is wanting. And where love is wanting in the marriage, there is hell upon the earth. And that is so true. Husbands, keep your house in order. Let the love of Christ reign. And you'll see. Now, verse 20, he's still dealing with the household. But now he goes to the children. The responsibility of children. He says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing uh, to the Lord. Now, at this point here, the child might be 10, 12, 15 years old, and the child might say, I don't have to obey you. Another child might say, you're not my dad, you're not my mom. We got so many divorces today. And so they can respond like that. Yet they don't realize that you've been raising them in this home. And you've taken them under your wing. And in some cases, since adults, or now they're adults, but you had them since they were children. And so listen to the translation of verse 20. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. And I might add to this, this is the scriptural thing uh, to do. Oh, it's so important. And the Bible says here, it's well-pleasing. Your obedience pleases the Lord. The word well-pleasing here, it's agreeable to God. It's acceptable to God. It's well-pleasing to God. There's something about obedience. God loves when we come to the place of obedience. As a husband, as a wife, as a child. God loves obedience. In fact, I've taught this from the pulpit. I'm convinced that if I obey God, you obey God. He has no alternative but to bless me, to bless you. Is God blessing you? And you say, well, not really. Well, then let me ask you, are you obeying him? Are you obeying his word? Because there are consequences. We're called to obedience. Here he's saying, children, obey. Now, we can ask another question. What age do I start obeying my parents? And at what age do I stop obeying? Here's the easiest answer I could give you 
uh, to any child or any parent. The moment that child arrives into the family, he or she is under your roof. They must obey. Until when? Until that child leaves the comfort and the privilege of your household. You see, I don't agree in a young kid, teen. I'm 18 years old, Dad. You can't tell me nothing no more. Mom, I'm 18. I'm not going to clean my room, and I'm not going to school. I'm 18 years old. You know, Mom, I can divorce you. I can divorce Dad. All I got to do is go to uh, my counselors. My kid told us that. I said, go for it. Divorce us. Let's see who feeds you. But you see, this is the kind of logic they get. Man, I tell you what. They're 18. I don't care. They're still under your roof. They're obedient. Go to school, get a job, do something. But you're not going to just lay around. Just last week, we were reading Ann Landers, and I told Mary, look at this. And the mom was asking, what do I do with my son? He's 22 years old. He doesn't want to work. All he wants to do is sleep. He wants, to, he wants money. We have to lock our, you know, the wallet and the checkbook and everything. because he. And I'm going... Somebody beat the boy. <laughs> Somebody do something logical. This should not happen. Well, not beat him, spank him. <laughs> I'm being flippant, but they're under your roof. Come on. Well, I don't have to go to church anymore, Mom. I'm 18. You're under our roof. You're going to church. Well, I've heard Pastor Bob's jokes already. You're going to church. Again, children obey your parents or your guardians in the Lord, for this is right. It's well-pleasing to God. Again, it's acceptable. It's agreeable with God. The Lord honors your obedience. In early biblical Roman times, such as here in Ephesians, uh, we find it, and also here in Colossians, children were often considered an annoyance, and they had no rights. Babies sometimes were abandoned, or they were sold, sold to slavery. The love that we're supposed to have. Dads, it's not done. Look at verse 21 now. Fathers... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And the word discouraged there, lest they become spiritless, or lest they become disheartened. We can do that so easily. Moms and dads, we're not to provoke our children. Do not bring them to the place of anger. Do not tease them to the place of anger. Do not mock them to the place of anger. And we see some of the things that are going on in our society, in our world today. I cringe when I'm at the store and I hear a, a parent yelling at their child. Obscenities, cursings, right there in the store. Oh, I hate when I hear this. You stupid little brat. You're never going to amount to anything. Oh, don't ever do that to a child. You're going to scar them for life. Now, if they get out of hand, there's a time and a place. You can take them out in the car and discipline them. You can leave the store immediately. 
I don't know if you've ever seen this, but a, a kid that wants this item and mom says no, he throws himself in the floor. Oh my gosh, that kid would be inside uh, that little container and out the door. But this is what they do. And they're cursing at their parents back and forth. And we have a responsibility. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Children, obey your parents. Now, take down these two verses. In Proverbs chapter 22, here's our responsibility in verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train them up. The Hebrew, it says dedicate them to God. How do we dedicate them? But through the word of God. Now, I believe in sports. I love sports. And I'm not against that your child wants to play baseball, football, basketball, the soccer, and, you know, go to scouts and Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, all that. All that's good. But don't leave God out of the equation. Listen, honey, we don't play sports on Sunday in the morning. We go to church. You got a game, tell them to schedule it after church. But you're going to go to church. That's important, and let your coaches know that. We give in too easily, and then the kid's 22 years old. You've never taken them to church, but they're great at soccer. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, lose his own soul? Listen to what God gives us and our children. In Psalm 127, verse 3, the psalmist tells us that children are a heritage. The word heritage, they're gifts, they're heirlooms. They're something costly uh, from God to us. Children are his gifts to us from the womb. I hurt because I read statistics recently. 48 million children have been aborted since Roe versus Wade. And that's what we know of as far as statistics. I hurt when I read that a parent has viciously attacked a child, sometimes to the point of death. We've read it even here in our own community. Then I hear of a good, well-intentioned couples that are trying for years to have children. And they can't have children. And then they have to look into adoption. And sometimes adoption is so expensive. And I, honestly, I don't understand some of these families that have kids and then they don't care for them and others that are praying and praying and they can't have children. I say, God, what, you know, change it. And yet God does what he has to do. Children are a heritage, an heirloom. It's something costly. It's a gift that God's given to you. And when we have that child for 18 years or longer, we're to train up that child in the ways of the Lord. Train up that child in the ways of the Lord. God gave us four daughters, and four daughters were raised in the church, and today they're all adults and they're serving God. And I thank the Lord for that because I have pastor friends that some of their kids are not serving God. Turn with me to a passage. I love this. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus is going to bless the children. Now, the rabbis uh, was customary. The kids were brought to the rabbi, and the rabbi would take a child and place them on their lap, and then he would lay hands on them. He would pray for them. He would bless them. 
And today in our society, it's tough. We have to be very careful, especially not putting a little child on our laps because of some of the atrocities that are happening from people that are in the church. It should not be. But Jesus here chooses to bless the children. But look at the position that the disciples take. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then little children were brought to him, speaking of Christ, that he might put his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. They admonished Christ. They forbid Christ. They didn't want the kids there. Now, obviously, we, knew, we know that Christ was busy. The ministry was demanding. But listen to what Jesus says. In verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children to come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is to have childlike faith. Jesus loves the little children. In verse 15, he concludes, And he laid his hands on them, and he departed from there. He prayed for them. Jesus loved the little children. The disciples were rebuking him. Get rid of them. Jesus is busy. And Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Such is the kingdom of God. Beautiful picture. Now let's go back to our text. And we're going to conclude in this last few passages. In verse 22, he begins this next section. We've been speaking about putting on righteousness. Put on righteousness, and let's see what God wants to do in your marriage. Put on righteousness, let's see what God wants to do in your household. And now he says, put on righteousness, and let's see your work ethics. Now, in the time of the early church, there were a lot of masters and a lot of slaves. But we're going to see it this morning and use it in our terminology, the employer, the employee the responsibility that we have as Christians. He begins here in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of your heart, fearing God. The Greek word doulos here, bond servant, is a servant by choice. I mean, you choose to go to the workplace... You chose to get your education, and now you go to this particular field, and this is your, your workplace now. You have a responsibility at this workplace. We're not to work as a man pleaser, but we're to work as unto the Lord. And so Christians are to be known as good workers. A servant by choice, obey your masters as obeying the Lord. And so the masters here are those that have authority over you. Today it's your employer, it's your boss, it's your company, the owners. We're to obey them, but not as a man pleaser. And I think we've all been to that place of men pleasers. Here comes the boss, and boy, you go to work. There goes the boss, and work stops. Well, we're supposed to do our work as unto the Lord. There's a beautiful passage. I missed it here. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the workman is worthy of his hire. And so if God gives you eight hours of wages, we're to give back eight hours of work. And so we're to be obedient in the workplace. If we're putting on righteousness, this is the right thing to do. And again, church, our testimony, it shines forth. That they would see uh, the Christian ethic in my life, the Christian ethic in your life of working. Notice verse 23 now. And whatever you do, whatever work you have, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So Paul brings it back. Work hard. Work cheerfully at whatever you do. Work as though you were working for the Lord rather than for your boss or for your owners. The word heartily here, Vine's Dictionary says, work as you're working from your soul, from the depth of your heartfelt, do your work. Be diligent in your work. Let it be a testimony. Let it be a testimony. Verse 24, Paul continues. And he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's a beautiful picture in verse 24. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance, a reward, because you're serving the master. You're serving Christ. Now, here's the hard place. Sometimes you do go to a workplace. Your boss is awful. The owners are awful. Well, you keep working as unto the Lord, and maybe you have to change jobs. But while you're there, you have to do your job. And so even if your boss does not recognize you, he does not reward you, the Bible says that God will reward you. Now I want you to turn to a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We have this inheritance. God has an inheritance for me. My boss could never, you know, if he never blesses me, never cares for me, never says a kind word. Praise God. I'm doing my work as unto the Lord. I've told the people that work here at the church. You're not here to please me. I hope you're not trying to please me. You're here to please God. That's what you're called to do. I'm here uh, to please God. God is going to reward you. Oh, I might come by and say, great job, great work, but God is the one that's going to reward you. Or if I never say nothing, or nothing is ever said to you, God is going to reward you. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. Peter speaks about a heavenly uh, inheritance. He begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection, I have this inheritance now. In verse 4, He's called me to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for your salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Again, I'm making reference 
If your boss never acknowledges you, if the owner of the company never acknowledges you, know this, that God sees your heart. God sees what you're doing, church. And so it doesn't matter where you work. I might work over here at the university. You might work at White Sands. You might work for the school district. You might work for the government, the city, the county. The list goes on. You might work in the private sector. You might be an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter. Whatever job that you do, whatever vocation that God's placed for you, we do it as unto the Lord. And if your boss doesn't recognize you, God does. He sees it all. I want you to write this verse down, and I want you to study it. In Psalm 139, the psalmist here, it speaks of the all-seeing eye of God. You see, God sees everything, church. He sees when, you know, your wife tells you to vacuum uh, the rug, and then you shove the rest of it underneath the rug, and you think your wife didn't see it because you stomped on it? God saw it. You see, I used to do that, but I can't do it no more. <laughs> God knows your heart. God knows your work ethics. And you know, for the longest time, Christians have been known for their work ethics. Oh, there's always going to be, you know, a bad apple in the bunch. Back in the early days of the Jesus movement, the mid-60s, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, was growing leaps and bounds. And most of the people that were coming to Saving Grace were burned-out hippies. They were all into drugs. They were all into the love scene. And then they were getting radically saved. And the power of the Holy Spirit was taking over their lives. And a lot of these went back to school. A lot of them went on to the workplace. There was a whole group that went up to Northern California and up to the area of Oregon. And they were planting trees out there, millions upon millions of trees, the little saplings, and they had to place them into the ground. All the owners found out quickly that the Christians did the best job. They were calling Costa Mesa, send, them a, send us all the old hippies you got. We will put them to work. And then they were getting up there, whole groups of them out there planting, you know, these saplings, and they're all singing praises unto God. And then the non-believers were just tripping out. And eventually, they got saved. And eventually, they started singing too. You see, your work ethics are important. Oh, there's going to be bosses that won't agree with you. But you do your work as unto the Lord. If you have put on righteousness, then let your work ethics show it. Let your ethics as a husband, as your call, as a parent, as you're called. It just all fits together. And so then Paul comes to the conclusion, look at verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. There's no respecter of persons in God. You do good, he's going to bless you. You don't do good, you do bad, then you've, you're going to you know, sow into the whirlwind, and you're going to reap corruption. I would encourage you to study Galatians chapter 6. It is the whole principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow into the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow into the spirit, you're going to reap the spiritual things. 
And so your work ethic is going to show it. Your parenting is going to show it. Your being a husband, being a wife is going to show it. Being a Christian is going to show it because you've put on Christ. You've taken off the garment, the soiled garments of sin. And man, we want to serve God. And they're going to know you by your fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit begins with love. That agape love that's going to flow through you. It is so important to see this, church. We're not finished yet. We're going to see some more as we go into Colossians chapter 4. But let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much just for your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy again, Lord. We thank you for everything that you've done in our hearts and in our very lives, Lord. Father, I pray this morning. Maybe there's somebody here that still has not made that commitment to Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give that opportunity. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, or maybe you're here and you're backslidden and you need to get right with God. Here's an opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there where you're at, if you were to raise your hand, I'll pray for you. And let God begin the work in you. If you'd like to come to Saving Grace, please raise your hand. I'll say a simple prayer of faith. Anybody here? I see your hand right here in the middle. Thank you. Anybody else, please raise your hand. I see your hand right here in the middle. I see your hand in the back there. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? I see your hand right there. Praise God. Anybody else before we close? You're coming to Christ, not to me, not to Calvary Chapel. Praise the Lord. Let's pray for these beautiful people that raised their hand. One of them was a, a young girl. Thank you, Lord. Father, as your word has gone forth, Lord, touch the hearts of these that raise their hands, Lord. The struggles, the pains of being in the world, the struggles, the pains of having the soiled garment of sin. Lord, we're all sinners saved by grace. But Lord, these that raise their hand this morning, they're acknowledging that they need you, Lord. They're acknowledging, Lord, that they cannot do it without you, Lord. Father, forgive them of their sins. As they confess their sins to you, Lord, past, present, and future, Lord, forgive them. Lord, come into their life right now. Take over their life right now, Lord. Lord, fill them with the Holy Spirit. Give them a hunger and a thirst for your word. Oh, Lord, bless them. It takes a lot to step out by faith. But, Father, the rest of us have done it in previous times. Father, teach them. Encourage them. We pray for them, Lord, in Jesus' name. And, Father, we continue to pray for the conclusion of the service now, Lord. We ask you to bless the offerings as you've given to us. We give back a portion. And so, Father, bless this time. In Jesus' name, we pray, and we all agree by saying amen.